Hello everybody and welcome to episode 58 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray and what matters on this episode is the aftermath of the US Open at Chambers Bay. A thrilling finish no doubt, but much bigger questions about the game posed and perhaps answered along the way. We'll explore that as we go along, the exciting news today is that we'll have one of the players who actually teed it up at the 115th US Open along for the ride. Jeff Ogilvie has kindly agreed to take some time to chat about the tournament and no doubt a bunch of other interesting stuff as well. Before we come to Jeff, let me introduce my co-host as always from the US, fresh back from Chambers Bay himself, blogger, course designer, course critic, commentator, etc, 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 Jeff Shackelford. Jeff, fascinating week. Can you get your thoughts and those of our special guest today? Well, I'm especially interested to hear what Jeff has to say since he had to play that golf course. I just got to watch the golf and enjoy the festivities, but I can't wait to hear. Uh, especially, it's fun to, when you've had a week to kind of digest it. I think that also helps at a U.S. Open because right on the spot, it's even when Jeff was pretty positive in the comments I saw, it's tough. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, in fact, one of my favorite episodes was when we had Matt Goggin on the week after Mary, and, he, and I think this will be yeah. – Something similar. From here in Australia, former touring pro, commentator, columnist, occasional caddy and business partner to today's guest in the design firm, Ogilvy Clayton, Cocking and Mead. Mike Clayton. Clayton's keen to hear your grilling of Jeff today about all things golf. Yeah, well, we've heard quite a bit about what Jeff's had to say about the course, so hopefully we can expand on that a bit and see what it was really like. Yeah, indeed. I'm uh, really looking forward to that. To the man of the hour, so to speak, fresh from a pretty solid performance at the US Open, it has to be said, the 2006 winner of that esteemed event, Jeff Ogilvie. Jeff, it's always a pleasure to be chatting to you, particularly the week after a major. Thanks for taking some time. Yeah, no worries. I'm glad I could do it. Yeah, not half as glad as we are, and I'm sure the listeners, it'll be no surprise, Jeff, I'm going to come to you first. Chambers Bay, a very different golf course to the one that you won the US Open on at Wingfoot in 2006. Just some thoughts about the course itself to start with, which was one of the talking points of the week. Well, yeah, um, I thought it was pretty good. Um, it was a little bit uh, extreme in spots, I thought, but knowing what Robert Trenton Jones can do to properties... Um, and it's a pretty extreme place, a really uh, strange piece of land, really, I guess. It was actually pretty good. It was better than I expected, I must say. It looked very severe. That's the word I kept thinking whilst watching on TV. Very severe, really severe bounces. Everything about the place looked very severe. Is that how it felt on course as well? It was very severe. I mean, the USGA tends to set stuff up slightly over the line, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think a little bit greener, a little bit softer, it wouldn't quite have had the kind of severeness. Severeness is a great word, actually. It was it's such an extreme property from top of the – from high, high point to low point. And from an architecture perspective, the way he chose to route the course, like kind of up and down the hill, um, it just – everything was just magnified when you missed it because the greens were all on the side of the hill, so – and there's no, there was no long grass to stop anything. So the ball rolled. It, if it if it got onto a slope, it rolled until it got to the bottom of that slope. And a lot of those slopes were very long. <laughs> we saw quite a few examples of you know, Dustin Johnson springs. I think it was the third round, Shaq. You'll be Shaq today and Jeff will be Jeff because otherwise it's okay. too confusing. Yeah. There was the third round. We saw Dustin Johnson's ball kicked off the back edge of the eighth green. Spent 10 minutes trickling down a maintenance road before it found Oh, yes, spot. It yes, was... yes, yes. That was a beautiful eight hole, yes. Yeah, that was, was... Uh, Saturday, I believe, yeah. Yeah, so there was uh, certainly some severe stuff. Jeff, I suppose the biggest talking point amongst uh, what we heard from the players afterwards, and certainly on TV, the greens did look, some of them, 
pretty terrible, I've got to say. What was your uh, your take on the greens? Uh, they certainly looked very bumpy from what we saw on TV. Yeah, to be fair, they were atrocious, really. Um, I had uh, that's I'd never played a golf professional golf tournament on greens like that. They um they were actually a complete disaster, really. But saying that, um, great putters have always putted well on bad greens. Uh, so, I, I, I mean, I, the the U.S. Open deserves to to be played on perfect greens, obviously, or on on really well ma- maintained greens, because that's what everyone wants to play golf on. And if it's the pinnacle of golf in America, the the premium championship, it it probably deserves to be on better surfaces than that. But saying that, I don't think, uh, well, unevidenced by the the last few hours of the tournament, it didn't affect the tournament and it actually probably helps the great players get to the top because the great players usually play well in adversity or in poor conditions. So I, it's not ideal, I don't think, for a great tournament, but it maybe even helped um, create the finish that it created because the cream by the end rose to the top and the cream are usually the ones that keep their heads when everyone else is not keeping their heads. So uh, it wasn't great. There's a point, isn't there, where it goes beyond the mechanics of the putting stroke and all those sort of things to exactly that, just being able to put up with what's put in front of you, and that becomes the contest, not who can hold the most putts, who can deal with the, the putts missing the best and get on with the job, I suppose. Clates, what was your take on that? I suppose I was going to ask just the next question, but he's already asked it. Is the condition of the greens at the US Open really all that important? Of course, it's somewhat important. But is it all, we all, I think, as amateur players, we expect when we pay a green fee that the greens will run smoothly and look like what we do on TV. Do we over emphasize the importance of good greens or at the US Open should the greens be perfect? Well, in an ideal world, of course they should be perfect, yeah. I mean, they've got four years to plan it, but we saw at Shinnecock how they can mess it up and, you know, there's no guarantee that you get it right. But, yeah, in the ideal world, they'd be perfect. They'd normally great at the British Open. You know, we never putted on ever on anything remotely close to a bad green at the Open Championship. And Augusta are obviously great and the tour events are Normally terrific. I mean, we, we, we putted on bad greens in Europe. I'm sure Jeff putted on some horrible greens on the continent in, in time. But, you know, as he said, it, it is what it is, really. At the end of the day, <laughs> someone's going to have a US Open trophy, aren't they? At the end of the day, Jeff Ogilvy, and <laughs> that person's got to deal with the greens along the way. So, yeah, yeah I think Jeff's boy was born out in 1991 when Finchie won the Open. I mean, he was playing great golf, but he was a great putter. But the greens there were really bad that week. And he won the tournament. So, you know, I think that. You know, in many ways, backs up just point that better putters do better on bad greens. I mean, I was a, not a great putter, and on bad greens, I was terrible. So, you know, and, and, and Spieth is the best putter in the game, you'd have to say, right now. We'll come to that. He's an extraordinary talent. I want to get Jeff's thoughts. He wrote about him in Golf Australia magazine last month, but I want to expand uh, on some of that. Jeff, did you get to watch the finish of the tournament? Probably sounds like a bit of a silly question, but did you actually get to sit and watch it on TV? It was absolutely thrilling, thriller-second stuff, I thought, the last hour. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I played, I guess, kind of mid-morning, about four hours in front, and I finished and did all my stuff and packed up and went to the airport and watched kind of the last hour and a half in a bar at the airport. Uh, it was incredible. I mean, it, it was the first time, I think, I... The setup of the course, I think, got better every day. As far as, in terms of the tournament, I mean, it obviously had its issues, the golf course, and it was a logistical nightmare. And it was obviously difficult to set up well. But Sunday, I played quite well on Sunday. And it, it was the most, it was the, it was the first time I'd ever played a US Open where Sunday was the day that 
it felt like it could have been like a Sunday at the Masters. Mm. Um, he gave everyone a chance, which is not usually the USGA's MO. Usually Sunday's the the day of all the real carnage. Mm. And, uh, it was it was really impressive. It was a really fun day. It was a really fun setup. He moved a couple of, a couple of tees way forward. He put them pins where I mean eight was an eagle pin, as as hard as that fairway was to hit and the green was to hit. Sixteen, I mean it was like a two iron under the middle of the green on a par four. Sixteen, seventeen was a birdie pin. Eighteen was a pretty accessible pin. Um, he set it up so what happened would happen, I think, and he got he got what he wanted. It was the first time in the U.S. Open, I think, that I'd ever. It had that Masters kind of feel that he had control of what the players were going to do, which I thought was interesting. It's funny, isn't it? I think it was eight years ago, 07, when Zach Johnson won the Masters, had the feel of going to the Masters and a U.S. Open broke out. This was the complete reverse, wasn't it? We went to a U.S. Open, but a Masters broke out. It just got more exciting as it got closer to the finish, which was fabulous for the fans. And I'm guessing a deliberate move on Mike Davis's part. Jeff Shackelford, it touches on some bigger issues, that doesn't, about what the U.S. Open should be. This was pretty controversial this golf course, lots of purists don't like the US Open looking the way it did last year at Pinehurst and this year at Chambers Bay. But Mike Davis has sort of pushed on with this notion, criticisms of specific courses, etc. cetera, at side. Um, your thoughts about how that tournament unfolded and what Jeff was saying there about it getting more exciting as, as the week went on or as the day went on, particularly Sunday. Well, it did. I, you, you, you know from previous discussions, I'm not a fan of that uh, mentality of beat the players up for three days and then uh, set it up for fun and, and, and magically hope that they can just flip a switch of going from defensive golf to, um, to, to going full bore and making birdies. I felt like, though, this year, I, I didn't feel watching it that the setup was uh, radically different. It just was in some key holes to me. It looked like he really gave people a chance to uh, funnel balls to, to spots that were forgiving, and uh, it was a great set up the last day i guess though that i'm the thing that is more intriguing evolving with mike and came out of this event is that there is a real animosity uh you sense towards him from from players and different people for having become too much a part of the story and i i i attribute that to him just being very media friendly whereas his, his predecessor was was not um and i'm curious kind of what jeff thinks of that if he's hearing the same kind of thing and what he attributes it to if it's something that goes back to Marion and the setup there or just uh just the overall difficulty always of the u.s open week that was sort of a question jeff yeah jeff, okay. that was for you um, yeah um it seems like ever since shinnecock in where was that oh four yeah. yeah that the, before that, it was just we're coming to the U.S. Open. This is going to be difficult. We'll just go play. But Shinnecock, they they completely lost the golf course on Sunday, obviously. And ever since then, it feels like everyone just talks about the setup so much and the guy who sets it up. It seems to be. It never was a conversation, but now it is the conversation. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that's necessarily Mike's fault. I just think. Uh, well, I mean, he's contributing to it by changing the traditional setup of the thing. But I don't think he mm-hmm. does. He active. I don't think he actively chases all this talk about himself. Does he? He just. Uh, is quite happy to um, change the kind of mo. Like he put that the what they call the graduated rough in at Wingfoot, which was the first year he did that, and that was kind of a brave move, really, against the whole traditional USGA thing. And it feels like he gets braver every year uh, 
to try something a little bit more extreme. Like Tory Pines in 2008, he moved that 14th tee way forward, made a 450-yard par 4, 310 yards on Sunday, which I don't think we'd ever seen in a US Open. And it feels like every year he does something a little bit braver and a little bit braver. And this was uh, the last two years were way out of the USGA's comfort zone, I imagine. But that's kind of the direction he seems to have moved it. I, I think it's it's gone too far, I think. It, it, he went too far at Chambers Bay, but I, I feel like sometimes he's trying to, he seems to be trying to make a point, like the the reverse of the traditional USGA setup. Hey, look, you can have a great tournament in lots of different ways. Uh, I don't think he necessarily tries to be part of the story, but I just think the way he goes about things, it's, he's naturally just going to be part of the story. When you're doing something as radical as what he's done, particularly in the last week at Chambers Bay, I'd like you to expand on that too far notion, but you are bound to become part of the story, aren't you? Because you're the person who's making it. People don't like change, and I can imagine some of the vitriol you must hear from some of the American players, Jeff, about you know what's been done to our US Open, quote-unquote. I can only imagine. When you said too far, touch on that first and then maybe talk about some of the reaction you hear from some of the American players, perhaps. Well, the too far, I think, the the course, while it wasn't, like, amazing, it, it was it was fine. And it actually, at least it asked proper questions. I mean, a US Open normally just asks you to hit the ball straight and get the ball up and down really well. Um, this one asked you to move the ball both ways because it was so firm. And it asked you to miss fairways in the right spots. There was a lot of width. There was some strategy built into the course. Uh which is quite rare in the US Open, which it was asking the right questions. But the fairways were so fast and so slopey. Oh, they were way too fast for the, for the kind of degree of slope they had. That Well, yeah, I think the first hole, say, was a really interesting par five with a kind of a high level, like an, a high spot, green kind of height, if you like, on the right. A little, and if you, if you played the right correct shot and you laid it up in the right spot or you you hit your second shot in the right spot, it would go on the green. And if you missed that, it would go all the way down to the low spot. But it was so extreme, the fairway, and so fast, the grass was so short that you couldn't get it on that little level. Like it just didn't, the whole, all the strategy of the hole went away and every shot just ran way down to the left. So the intent was good, but the setup didn't let some of the strategy work. And there was a lot of holes, like 12 was a really kind of a cool drivable hole, but he had the fairway so narrow there was, it was, you had to hit driver at the green. There was no choice to lay it up. Um, <laughs> well, well, Jeff, uh, in his defense, that is, there is no other place to put fairway. Uh, I know you'll be shocked to know that 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 hole was the hall road for the, the <laughs> sand on the project, which it still kind of looks like the hall road. But anyway, go on. Sorry. <laughs> and the eight, was, hole, the eight, oh, hole the eight potentially hole. was potentially a pretty good hole, but you couldn't hit the fairway because. There's too much pitch on the fairway, and the fairways were probably rolling at 10 or 11 on the stint meter. Um, the ball just hit the fairway and rolled into the right rough. And then the second shot, again, you were supposed to kind of bump it up the left, and if you hit it on the left-hand kind of half of the green, the ball would go on the green. If you didn't, it would roll down, and you'd have a pitch up the hill. Well, it was so the fairway was so fast that every ball just went down to the bottom of the hill. It was You couldn't use any of the slopes or levels or any of the kind of the built-in strategy, which was... Maybe it wasn't perfect. They weren't perfect holes, but they were very difficult to. The intent was taken away because of the the, the extremeness of the setup, which is a shame on a lot of levels, isn't it, Jeff? One of which being that style of golf, which I think all of us sitting here prefer, and that's not a secret. Um, it doesn't do it any favors when 
the style of golf is betrayed by the setup as what you're talking about. Had we been able to see players use their skills to hit the balls into those small areas to get the result that they were looking for, it would have been so much more interesting, wouldn't it, and more exciting in that way. I think. I mean, it's a little bit like Pinehurst last year that when you go play Pinehurst, you kind of want the fairways green-ish, you know, Bermuda green, not crazy green, but green, and then all the sandy wasteland. And he pushed it so far and it kind of, it didn't even look like you wanted to see it. It was just a little bit too far. Yeah. And it's the same as this. I mean, it could have an amazing look, that Chambers Bay. When you see all the pictures that they took, obviously, in winter or with the, the kind of greenish fescue fairways and the great contrast between that and the yellow the yellow long rough, it, it looks amazing. But the whole course is just so kind of – there's no contrast because the whole, the whole course is that same kind of yellow color. It kind of loses a bit of its appeal, just a little bit too far. Mm. Um, but saying that, it, it, the great players ended up at the top at the end. So, I mean, is there anything else you really need to do with a big golf tournament? Shaq, it certainly looked like a different golf course to what we saw on the flyovers with Gil Hands and Holly Saunders, didn't it? When it just looked, watching those was like, I can't wait for this tournament to start. When it right. started, it was a completely different golf course, wasn't it? You could, just by looking at it, you could tell the difference in the color. Well, they uh, said that two weeks out of the event, they were worried about lost balls and how lush it was. And literally, it was baking sun for those two weeks <clears throat> leading up to the event. And the difference, uh, Josh Lewis and Eric Johnson, the superintendents, they basically have two superintendents, both very good at what they do. And they had it incredible Sunday. Unfortunately, as Rory McIlroy pointed out, they had they brought it up to the edge and it, it's hard to get it back down a little bit. But they you forget how long the days are there. So two straight weeks, essentially, of sun and warm there just completely baked it out and it, it really wasn't a product of of intent it was it was a lot of it was weather and they were dumping water on that course every night I mean, you went out in the morning and i'm sure jeff can attest to this the difference in the morning and the afternoon i've never seen anything like them you can see the change in the color of the grass you can feel it when you walk the dust you know by the afternoon it was uh the environment there is so bizarre and then even the little microclimate by, by the water is is like five degrees cooler you just feel the coolness of the water and then you get up on uh, on the hill and it's it's so much warmer so it's a very complicated place to maintain and then and very complicated to have a tournament on just from the agronomic side and then there's all the other elements too um so it's it's there's a lot that went into that place and and they managed some of it very well and some of it not so well a lot of the players commented on the change in the course morning to afternoon jeff i assume that's something you would have noticed as well it sounded like it was pretty obvious if you were playing I, yeah, I'd never seen a golf course that you could see change. You could you could see it change almost. It it, it changed by the hour. I mean, Jeff's right. I mean, it's you're a long way north in Seattle. It was Scottish kind of uh, daylight hours. I mean, it was light at four thirty something in the morning, and it was not getting dark till ten o'clock. Yeah, and it was for for up there. I imagine it's very rare. We basically didn't see a cloud. I was there for seven days i didn't see a cloud i mean it was wow there was a morning cloud a couple of times but it was basically bright sunshine all day which for up there is that course i mean i don't know if uh, that's the way grass works but it would never have seen sun a sunny patch like that i don't think i mean it was just baking it out and it was obviously they'd probably kind of slightly maybe underwatered the course up to two weeks before the tournament expecting not expecting weather like that and then it 
gets away from you when you don't have the natural rain that they probably normally get every couple of days in Seattle. Clates, your thoughts, your thoughts on what's on what's TV? And some questions for Jeff, which I'm sure you've got hundreds. Uh, I thought it was – I mean, the golf, you know, to me it looked exaggerated, the course, a bit. You know, you wonder what Bill Core would have done with that same bit of land, whether he would have calmed it down a bit. But uh, I, I guess from Australia's point of view, Jeff, there's a kid who no one had heard of really, unless you watched the Australian Amateur a couple of years ago, Cameron Smith, who hit the shot of the week almost. How about how about all four rounds? Yeah, well, that's, that's just yeah, it's sad player, nobody's talked yeah, about it, but it's player, unbelievable. Yeah, only play a par or better all four rounds. That's a fairly impressive <laughs> performance, Jeff Ogilvie, that's on that course, wasn't it? Well, it was amazing, yeah, especially for a guy, obviously, I imagine it was his first US Open, right, yeah, I think? First major. Yeah. First major. I mean, it shows that it's kind of seems – it's an incredible effort for him. I feel like he's locked up his card for next year. Uh, yeah. He's getting a lot of – and now he's kind of got a free pass to kind of get ready for next year, you know. He's um, incredible, a great effort. It's, it's happening more and more. I mean, the fact that someone would have done that even 10 years ago in a major, like a 21-year-old kid from a – first major it just wouldn't happen it seems to be happening more and more now these kids are so good so young um and especially australian kids i mean it's a really good it's a really good period for australian golf it feels like coming up as clates would know uh we've got a lot of young good young kids and he might not have even been one of the two or three that people were thinking about and now he's out there obviously competing in big tournaments like that it's really cool and that shot in the last i mean how fun is that i mean all you want at the end of a week when you're young and kind of you're having an amazing week you just want that kind of easy putt in the last so you don't have to have too much stress and he gets a tap in for eagle on the last hole of the US Open. I mean, that's just a dream week. That must have been a pause. pause. Like he's never heard before, I would imagine, and for longer than he's ever heard in his life before. Clay, did you watch Cam Smith win that Australian amateur a couple of years ago against Jeff Drakeford at Commonwealth? It was quite sad in some ways for Jeff at his home club. I think he was five up with was, nine to play and, and he, was, he, he was five up after the sixth hole in the afternoon and then and he was always going to win. Cam Smith was never going to beat him. He, Drakeford was hit, he drove it on the 14th green in the morning. Jeff, you know, that, what's it, 340-yard par four or something. And he was hitting a wedge into the 13th, the par five. And Cam was never going to win. I mean, Drakeford was – and he just – we kind of watched and walked around and he didn't miss – he didn't hit a green. Drakeford didn't hit a green from the 7th to the end. He beat him on the 16th in the end. Yeah. He just kept plugging away and he was just – you know, he didn't look like he was a flashy player, but when you sort of thought about it at the end, he barely missed a shot and didn't panic. And when he was five down, he just kept doing what he was going to do. And he's played well this year. I think he had $400,000 already on the tour without having any status. He got a couple of invites and played well. And then, but wow, that was an amazing shot in the last hole. We'll get off Cam Smith in a moment, get to some of the other players. Jeff, I want to get your thoughts on because there were some amazing guys at the top of the leaderboard. But he's he's kind of flown under the radar, Clates, but at every level, Cam Smith has answered all the questions that can be asked for me. He nearly won on the Asian. I think he finished with six or seven straight top tens on his first year on the Asian tour last year. Didn't get across the line, but was never out of it any week. So just has that game that week in and week out keeps going. You're right, he had, I think, about $400,000 from uh, four or five invites prior to that. So good luck to him. Jeff Ogilvie, Cam Smith aside, the top of that leaderboard, we have a look. And what a Sunday it was, of course. Jordan Spieth winning. We'll talk about him. But Dustin Johnson, um, from watching on the television, what an extraordinary natural physical talent. What's he like to play with? It must be remarkable to see him up close, wouldn't it? Yeah, he's uh, he's incredible. He's He's a super nice guy to play with. And he hits the ball so hard. It's hard to imagine if you've never seen somebody hit the ball hard properly 
how hard he hits the ball. Um, it's golf looks very easy for Dustin. He doesn't uh, he doesn't look like he's working too hard to do that either. He's just incredibly talented. He hits he can move the ball both ways. His drive he's probably along with Rory. In fact, in some ways, he's probably a better driver of the ball than Rory. I think um, it, it's it's kind of to be seen, to be believed, how hard he hits it and how far the ball goes. Um, and obviously, it's kind of well talked about. He's not really a deep thinker, DJ. So he's really got uh, a great kind of head for the game in some respects. That he's he's never going to overanalyze it, and he's never going to kind of get in his own way. He's just walks up to the ball and hits it. He's a he's a very talented guy. Best walk on tour, best gate of any professional. I think so. <laughs> He has a pretty good gait. I like Rory's got a pretty good gait. He too. bounces, doesn't he? When he plays well, Rory bounces. But Johnson really looks uh, like a gunslinger, I reckon. That I had a, a there was a, at the at the memorial. This uh, I was working with this woman um, as part of the tournament, and she had never seen him before, and she just went nuts over him. I said, I don't get it. What's the deal? Tell me. It's that walk. It's like it's like a jaguar. I have I just could not grasp what she was talking about. And she was swooning over. I'm like, really? That's bizarre. But I, I got to ask. Uh, I was I was in the media center all day, so I went out though finally for the 18th hole scene. And I, you guys, so you're watching on TV, but and I don't know how to convey it, but because uh, Jeff's right, he he he's it's a good thing, it's a blessing at times, as we know, not to think a lot in the game. But that was the moment where he needed a professional tough caddy and. What I and part of it's the history of the moment, but it happens so fast. Uh, the whole scene, you know, Jordan Spieth plays a hole, and then here comes Dustin Johnson. Boom, hits a shot. He's got the putt. Jason Day's trying to help him. I think um, say, "Hey, mate, let me give you the line." And then Dustin was being really kind of almost. It seemed like obstinate, or he was overwhelmed by the situation. He didn't know what to do. But was that you, the reading you guys had that that was a moment where? He needed a Stevie on the bag or somebody else to say, "Yeah, yeah, l- let him putt. Let's watch this." Uh, it just—it was such an awkward thing. And then, of course, after he missed, it was just like a funeral out there. It was so quiet and bizarre. But uh, I really felt bad for him in that case because I felt like he—he he was sort of let down by not having a a smarter caddy. Is that what you guys saw? He looked lost to me. Yeah. Jeff you're the only one who's been in a situation anything like that with that kind of pressure. Is it easy to get lost in that moment? I would think it would be all surreal. Things would move in weird ways. You wouldn't maybe know what's going on in some ways. Yeah, time time moves kind of really strangely. I mean, it feels like it takes forever for your turn to putt and then all of a sudden it's over really quickly. Um, it's – I don't – I mean, on, I actually had that same thought when I was watching at the airport. Jeez. I think Dustin's one guy who could really benefit from one of those really old school caddies who kind of who's not afraid to speak, who's a very wise guy and who's not afraid to speak up at the right time. I, there's elements of that that would uh, in that situation would really help him. But then the rest of the tournament, I mean, he's obviously he gets along with his brother really well and it keeps him happy. And maybe he gets to the 18th hole with a chance because he's having a good time out there with his brother, you know. So I I'm on kind of both sides of that position, but. That putt he had, he got so unlucky that that ball didn't roll back any further. I mean, I had a putt, oh, whatever, yeah, yeah. four hours before when the greens were probably six <laughs> inches slower from right from pin high right of the hole, 
and it broke from 10 feet, it broke three feet. I mean, that was on a massive slope, that hole. And if his ball had come back two more feet, it, it would have been very difficult to hit that far past the hole. I mean, I, it's not the second part. He definitely seemed to rush, but the first part was either in or four feet past. That was the only two options. So I kind of feel bad for him that it didn't come back a little bit further. But saying that, it was a uh, Jack Nicholas would have two putted it, wouldn't he? He would have hit five iron into the green, Jeff, and that's got to be unfair when you're playing against that. That was just extraordinary. The tee shot he hit down 18, wasn't it? Especially 72nd hole of a major to take on that little narrow gap and hit it in there. That was it is tight. Yeah. One of the it best shots of the tournament, that one. Well, I mean, it, the the thing I got when I was watching, I mean, you go, you start watching the US Open in the afternoon after I play in the morning and watch Dustin play, and there was bunkers that no one I played with would were even thinking that was even in the realm of reality to carry, and he stands there and carries him by 30 yards. I mean, it's how he drives the ball is off the map compared to almost everyone else on tour, maybe... Rory, when he gets that free-flowing driver going, he's pretty impressive. But DJ's driver, its he's one of the straightest players I've ever played with. And he happens to be 20 hours longer than everyone else on tour, too. It's a massive advantage. It's a different hard swing to Bubba Watson's hard swing, too, isn't it? its a They'd probably drive it somewhat equal distance, but totally different ways of getting there, it seems, from the outside, anyway. Bubba's doing a lot of... Uh, Bubba hits it long when he needs to hit it long. Like he, he every No two... Bubba drives are the same. One's he hits a lot of low kind of bunty fades, and every now and then he'll try to smash a big high one. And he's he looks very uncomfortable with a straight hole in a normal shot. Bubba he he needs to do. It's almost that kind of ADD headspace he's got. He needs to be messing with the ball. You know, he, he needs <laughs> something to be going on. Whereas DJ just hits it long and hits it straight and. It doesn't matter if it's a narrow hole or a wide hole or there's bunkers or water or anything. He just stands there and kind of swings free and just smashes it. He's, it's an amazing, it's amazing thing. If anyone ever get, if you get close to Dustin Johnson when he's playing golf, go watch him hit drivers. It's very impressive. What's the sound? What's it sound like? Different? Yeah, it's pretty different. He's, it's, uh, he squashes the ball pretty hard. I mean, all those guys who hit it a long way, it sounds different, but he, his is, uh, Players will turn around, and snap their head around when he hits a couple of drivers. It's it's definitely a step up noise wise from everybody else. Yeah, and just coming, you're not short either, Jeff. Hey, I mean you're not the longest hitter out there. Well, among anymore, but not like you're not like anybody in the field these days is short, is it? <laughs> they can all hit it pretty good. No, I mean most most guys out there now, either they've got their equipment set up and their golf swing's getting better, and everyone's probably in slightly better shape, and, and everyone's pretty long. Really, there's a few short, good players who are shortish hitters. You know, the Zach Johnsons and that who kind of excel everywhere else. But for the most part, everyone's pretty long. But there's there's about ten guys, probably the Bubbers, Dustins, McElroy, Adam Scott, that are just on a different level from everyone else, distance-wise. But then there's that one guy, Dustin. I, I mean, I think really Dustin's just on another level, distance-wise, because he does it so easy. He's not. He's not really. He does go at it hard towards the end of a round, but the first hole on Thursday morning at Pebble Beach, he flies the ball 100 yards, 300 yards. Like it's just, it's unbelievable that the the speed he has over everyone else is incredible. Did he get three iron onto the third or fourth hole there? 290, 300 yards, I think, Pebble Beach that year. It was uh, some extraordinary stuff. Jeff Shackelford, 
some more of your thoughts just on the US Open. I wanted to ask Jeff, I love this player talk. I want to get into some specifics with Spieth and Scott and McElroy and Westheiser and a couple of others. We saw some terrific stuff on the leaderboard. But before we leave all that, just some thoughts. On, I know you're at Chambersbound. I know you're a very interested observer. So I want some more thoughts from you of what you saw on the ground there. Well, you just I like to take in kind of the, how does the whole thing work and um, how, how does it function? It was the strangest U.S. Open, and that, that that getting to the golf course was the easy part. And then when you got on the on the course, people couldn't see, and it obviously impacted the energy. I mean, I'm watching U.S. Senior Open right now, and it's back to sort of normal golf, and people right next to the uh, next to the players, and there are actual people there, and it's it's got a, so the energy. And I guess I'd be curious if Jeff noticed that energy lacking because. Um, it, 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 they have amazing sports fans up there. They're they're a little crazy, but they're not they're not uh, mean like some of the crazy sports fans can get. They're just right. You know, they 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 bring a passion and a little nuttiness. But they were so thrilled and proud of their place, and so it was hard to be. Uh, yeah, it was it was hard uh, watching, knowing that these people couldn't see anything. And I, I just have to think that impacted the energy, Jeff, when you're out there playing. Yeah, it was a, it was a weird one. Wasn't it? I mean, I would have been pretty disappointed if I was a kind of a Seattle golf fan and I'd been looking forward to the U.S. Open. I mean, maybe a lot of them didn't have any anything to compare it to because this was the first U.S. Open a lot of them have been to. But from, I mean, Julie was there, my wife, and you sh- sh- you couldn't follow. You just couldn't follow a golfer. You just had no chance. And on so many of the holes, I mean, the eighth had no spectators at all. Mm. I mean, you you were never closer than 200 yards from a spectator when you were on the eighth hole. I mean, it was just completely bizarre. Um, and that, but So you would have spots in the course that were – there was it was like you weren't playing a golf tournament at all. But then you'd get to 18, which had that – the 18th really had like the 18th at the Open Championship, like the – kind of feel about it it had the biggest stand on the course by a long way um and it was an amazing atmosphere so it kind of had a bit of both but it was a very odd logistically the tournament didn't work at all i don't think once you got inside the gate like jeff said normally getting into a u.s open is impossible because the traffic's unplayable but it was actually all right but everyone i all of the people i got tickets for and everyone who came to watch me were pretty disappointed with trying to get around the golf course Good thing they got the tickets for free, Jeff. So good on you. I saw a photo of you and Ernie Els walking off the eleventh tee. I think it was, and the uh, the hammies and the quads were getting a workout for the players and the caddies, weren't they? Oh, it was an incredible walk. I always at the end of those tournaments, there's a level of fatigue because mentally you've been switched on for four days, and really you've been switched on for weeks, kind of in the lead up. But I had never had like leg fatigue, and I'm in pretty good shape. I mean, I run a lot, and I'm reasonably fit. I think I. I've never had leg fatigue like that at the end of that tournament. That was a monstrous walk and a lot of times through kind of dusty sand and over a dune and up a hill and it was not not an easy place to get around. Well, isn't there also just the stress of trying not to fall? <laughs> I mean, I don't know how that was inside the ropes for a player, but I, I was constantly on guard anytime you started walking anywhere in the natives or there was slope because you just, you just would see people – I didn't see as many as I thought, but you just see people kind of just randomly go. A well, tiger, look at tiger. He was up in the up on eight, and he just started to go one time. He just boom down, and because it was so dry and there's no traction, and that's go, exhausting too. Did anyone go metal spikes, Jeff? 
just for the oh, week? Oh, yeah, you know? there were a few, yeah. I think there'd be a few. I mean, there's there's a few golfers who hang on to metal spikes. Um, there's probably 10 or 15 guys who always use them. They just refuse to not use metal spikes. And I think there might have been a few who added them extra. It was very f- – when that, that f- when grass gets – all the moisture comes out, it gets frictionless, doesn't it? You, you try to tee the ball up and you kind of – everyone leans on their driver when you tee the ball up. You couldn't do that because your driver just slips off the grass. Um Wednesday, two caddies, Gareth Lord, Stenson's caddy, fell over in front of us and broke his wrist. And Damien, who Clates would know, caddying for Stevie, Stevie Gallagher, he broke his ankle all, all in about a 10-minute stretch. Uh, and this is that was walking along the fairways or like kind of walking off the front of tees and stuff. So it was, I wouldn't say incredibly dangerous, but you had to be – Pretty careful. Had to be careful where you put your feet, for sure. There was a moment, Jeff Shackle or Clates, I'll come to you. There was a moment uh, on the ninth hole Friday afternoon when Jason Day went over. When all you could think was, "Boy, this lawsuit's going to cost them a bit." Before it became obvious it was vertigo, but it looked at first like he had slipped and broken a wrist in that first thirty seconds. You can only imagine what that might have cost the USGA. And having heard the stories of people slipping over earlier, I mean, it was not beyond the realms of possibility that something like that. Might happen. Clates, a couple of questions for Jeff before I take over and start asking about players and stuff. I mean, you must have something you wanted to particularly oh, grill him well, about. Well, we mentioned it before, Tiger. What do we make of Tiger? Man, <laughs> oh, the easy questions first, Clates. Jeez. It's a rally killer. That's not an easy question. That's a rally killer. There's a, there's a show in that, isn't there? A, a whole episode. Jeff Ogilvie, was it, is it talk amongst the locker room? Without putting you on the spot about what your thoughts are, is it talk amongst the locker room, Tiger, or has everyone got past that now to the next generation? No, everyone's talking. I mean, it's he's he's been the talk my whole career, really. Um, on the, I can't believe he did that, and now it's still I can't believe he's doing that. But obviously, at the other end of the spectrum, it's. I mean, it's kind of hard to watch, really. I mean, as much as we all wanted to kind of beat him all the time, it's kind of sad to watch at the moment. Um, I think everybody would love to see him like playing well again. I, 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 I mean, nobody has the answer. I mean, it's. It seems to be, in, historically, it seems to be the most talented, the guys who are the best, can fall the hardest. You know, I mean, Clays will, I mean, Clays will know more than me, but like Sandy Lyle, Seve, Duval. I mean, these guys weren't just good players. I mean, they were the best of all time. And they seem to fall harder than just the average guy. It's, uh, it's amazing. It's hard to watch at the moment. It's, it's, it's a long way back from where he's at right now. Clates, a top three would, an unthinkable proposition for Tiger Woods. Even coming into this week, you never would have picked a top three would. It's well, embarrassing, you, isn't it? You know, it went at one shot. But when I wrote a column pointing out yeah, that you know, Watson was 33 when he won at Birkdale, Palmer was 34 when he won at Augusta in 64, Seve was 31 at Litham, and no one thought that that was the end of it in terms of majors. And Tiger was, what, 35 at Torrey Pines, 34, 35? I mean, maybe you just, you know, those guys that are at the top for that period, it just it just beats their game down. The game just, you know, it's almost like Tiger's game is saying to him, I can't take it anymore. I've had enough. You know, I've been under too much pressure for too long. I'm just, I'm, I, you know, I'm just going to give up on you. So, I mean, that's almost what it looks like to me. His game's just had enough of it. But because he's been the main man for 15 years, playing the toughest tournaments, the toughest courses, nearly always in contention, it's just... It's a brutal amount of pressure to put on one golf swing in one game, and you wonder if it's just said, no, enough, I'm done. 
And the scrutiny, Shaq, just the last 10, 10 years alone, 10 to 15 years, the scrutiny has increased, what, sixfold, do you reckon, from, say, the 80s when Norman was a, a huge 80s and 90s when we had television, but with the internet and the mobile phone, and the, the scrutiny is just extraordinary, isn't it, at the top level now? It's brutal, and it's it's constant. Every shot, every movement's analyzed. Every uh, everything. It's just too much. It's uh, but it's also a subject that's fascinating because he he's one of the top two greatest players of all time, and then he's going through things that other golfers can relate to and wonder about, and yeah. and actually say, "Wow, uh, that's." it's that's incredible that's i've i've had that sensation or i've i've had those things happen i mean it's 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 the nature of our sport i think that makes it even that much more captivating to people uh, harrington said on a, an irish golf podcast a few months ago i heard him say that when tiger was having those issues with the with his chipping around the greens he said in the locker room a lot of the guys wouldn't watch on tv because there was a sense of well if that can happen to him you know <laughs> maybe yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to watch just in case, enough of that. Um, Tiger's, Tiger's troubles will be ongoing and he's, the story will be ongoing. But I want to talk about a couple of other players with you specifically. Jeff, you wrote in the Golf Australia magazine, I think it was last month or the month before, about Jordan Spieth uh, and why he's good for the game. And I think we all understand why he's good for the game. He's a, he's a, he's a lovely bloke. He did a terrific job here at the Australian Open. But the thing that stood out in that column that you, that you said was people think he, does, think he does it all with his putting, but he hits the ball better than he's given credit for. Talk a little bit about Jordan Speed's game. I imagine you've played a fair bit with him, and boy, he's impressive, isn't he, in every department? He really is. I mean, I think everybody wa- I mean, everybody loves to watch like the McElroy number one in the world, don't they? The guy who just hits shots that no one else can hit. Um, but Jordan, he isn't that guy. He's just re- he's a really good normal golfer, if you like. He kind of gives hope to a guy who isn't going to hit the ball 350 yards. You know, he, he he hits the ball pretty straight, really. He hits it at least as far as me or further, which is plenty far enough. Um, and he's obviously a gifted putter. He's he's a very, very complete golfer. Like, he, I would say he's as complete as anyone who plays golf at the moment at a high level. Um, most people have a part of their game that's always just not quite up to the standard of the rest of his game, but he doesn't really have that. And... His putting is obviously talked about, like you said, but he he hits the ball really nicely and he keeps the ball going forward. Like he doesn't have those round killing sideways shots. He do, that just doesn't seem to be in his game. It just it goes forward, and that's really important because it, it's stress free golf when you're not hitting it in the junk. If, if you don't hit it in the junk, you, you're losing a lot of a lot of the stress comes out of the game. Like you said, the stress of the last. 10 years or 15 years has worn Tiger down because they spent a lot of the last 10 or 15 years in the trees or in the rough or having to save the hole or grind it out. Jordan doesn't have to do that at this point. Um, he's uh, physically very complete. But the best part about him is he's, uh, he's got an unbelievable golf IQ. He just, I don't know, he just understands this he understands the course that day the scoring the situation um you never see you very rarely see him flustered for very long i mean he's obviously 21 and we've seen a few glimpses of his um throwing a club back at the bag or getting grumpy for a minute but it, it's very fleeting and it disappears really quick and he has he has that 
golf IQ where he just it's he just he seems to understand the right times to go for stuff, the right times to lay up, the the right way to play the golf course, the right time to to kind of be patient and not get impatient. He's just uh, complete is the best word I could say for him, and just incredible at his age to have that kind of composure. Um, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, both times this year in the in the Masters, he was having he was having a lot of trouble closing, finishing his third round um and made an unbelievable up and down on the 18th to kind of get a little momentum going into sunday like to to, to kind of steady the ship it was almost like he kind of understood that this is a really important moment i've got to get this up and down or 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 tomorrow is going to be really difficult and i'm going to go it's going to be harder to sleep tonight and last week too i mean it made a horrendous double bogey on the 17th hole um We've all done that. I mean, it was completely human, but it was the easiest pen of the week, and it was a really strange shot from a guy who I said who's, who doesn't hit shots like that. But then he comes out and plays the last hole and makes a great birdie, and it's just like, wow. I mean, there's a lot of guys who wouldn't have done that. It's just He's just very uh, composed and a great – golf IQ is the best way I've heard it described. Okay. 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 Now that you've brought that up, though, there's something I'm dying to hear what you all think that's just – Really bothering me, though. Uh, he has managed his career beautifully. Everybody around him gives him great advice. He makes great decisions. And I have nothing against the John Deere Classic. But he has a chance to win the Grand Slam. He has a great chance to win at St. Andrews. I'm curious what you all think of him deciding to play the John Deere and rolling into St. Andrews, having played it once on Monday afternoon. I just... I, I'm perplexed. I, I'm really I'm writing a piece. I'm going back and looking at some of the people who've who've played there before. It seems like an odd choice to me. Well, uh, Tony Lima. God, Clayton, you're unbelievable. What do you? What's Tony Lima done? <laughs> well, he he played 27 holes practice at San. Never seen the course. Played played 27 holes and won the tournament. Okay. So there's one. Um, okay. Kind of. So it can be done, is your point. And, and, and Trevino in 71, I mean, he came from, won the US Open, won the Canadian Open, turned up at Birkdale on whenever he turned up there and won there as well. So, Okay, but that's Birkdale. Let me put it to you another way. He just won at Chambers Bay. I watched a decent amount, and I didn't feel like he had his A game. I felt like the local knowledge element with his caddy yeah. uh, was the difference. So we're going to St. Andrews where we know – you have to know something about the golf course. I don't think his caddy's ever been there, and he's a great caddy. I just, I just, I feel like it's an odd thing. I feel like he's got a once in a lifetime opportunity, and you've got to go all in, or maybe trying to go all in puts more pressure on him. And the way he's going about it takes some pressure off. Is that perhaps the thinking? Well, I mean, Jeff would know better than me, but I, I guess you give him points for. Didn't John Deere give him a sponsor's invite a few years ago or something, or when he didn't have any status or? Yeah, yeah, you know, he's obviously repaying a favour, which you can't criticise him for that. But you know, I take your point. You know, that's not what I'd be doing. But but Jeff can answer better than me. He's playing at St Andrews, obviously, in a few weeks. And I'm on. Look, I'm on both sides of it. I think it's uh... you're just showing yourself to be a great fence sitter, Mister Ogilvy. Come on, <laughs> it's too. I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it either. I would. Uh, I would. I mean, I. I, I'm going to St Andrews early just because I want to play St Andrews more. I've got a chance to play St Andrews a lot of times with nobody on it or very few people on it. I'm just going to go play it as many times as I can because I'm just a St Andrews fan. 
as much as anything else, as well as preparing for the tournament. And I've played there a hundred times. Um, it's a very appealing attribute of his from a marketing perspective, obviously with all his, uh, he's well marketed, like Jeff said, uh, going to the John Deere and doing the right thing. He's going to a small market, a tournament that's looked after him in his past. It was the first tournament he won, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, obviously a place where he feels a sense of responsibility to go to. And maybe he's one of these guys who wants to play the week before a major. I mean, Mickelson usually plays a week before a major. Um, now playing in Moline, Illinois is not quite the same as <laughs> playing, playing in the Scottish open, but I, uh, I wouldn't do it. I think, uh, but he's going to make himself a lot of fans doing stuff like this. It's something, I mean, stuff, the sort of stuff that, Tiger never really did. He didn't look after small markets and stuff like that. And I think uh, Jordan's just that kind of guy. I think he has obviously got a chance at history, like you say, Jeff, and maybe if it doesn't work out for him, he'll look back and not like his decision. But, I mean, everybody's different, you know, and maybe this is the way he he wants to do it. Yeah, no, I Maybe he'd carry so much guilt into the next week for not doing it that it would wear on him. You know, I don't, I don't know. Sure. It's funny, you know, Jeff, because it must be a nightmare in some ways being his manager because um, barely had he donned the green jacket in April when he was in the press conference sprouting the fact that he'll be back in Australia to defend the Australian Open at the end of the year. I don't think any deal had been negotiated at that stage. And he was already saying, I'm going back to defend because, you know, partly it's the right thing to do and he enjoyed himself. But... You get the sense with Spieth that if he feels good about what he's doing, he's going to play better golf. I think there's something in that guilt at St Andrews about not having teed up the week before where he should have might affect his game negatively. I, I, I think he's doing what he feels is – because there's no textbook on this stuff, is there? He might tee up at John Deere and miss the cut at St Andrews or he might have gone to the Scottish Open and won it. So you don't know, do you? But he's got to feel right about what he's doing. That's far more important perhaps than seeing some of the bumps and hollows at St Andrews. Yes, No. Oh, yes. I mean, there's there's no end of learning you can do at St. Andrews. I mean, I think every time around you're better off the next time you go there and he goes there and plays 27 holes like with a right-to-left wind on the front nine all of a sudden it blows the other way in the tournament. It's going to be a completely different course for him. But um, he's young and I can't play as many weeks as he seems to play, but he seems to really have taken on that responsibility role of playing a lot as a young guy, he plays way more than a number one or number two in the world has played for a long time. I mean, maybe in the old days they used to, but um, not in my career. I mean, Tiger, you saw him once a month, you know. Um, Greg never played that much. Jack played pretty selectively. Uh, Jordan is playing a lot, which is either he loves playing lots of golf tournaments or he or he's kind of shouldered a bit of a responsibility to kind of be out there and playing a lot and I think it's knowing Jordan it's probably just a little bit of both hmm. so it's it's an odd decision from our perspective but I mean it's the, it's obviously the decision he's made it's a kind of a, it's a nice appealing attribute that he wants to go look after a tournament that's looked after him before everything along the way a couple of others wanted to ask you about or pick your brain about Jeff there were some really interesting performances at the US Open let's go with Louis Westheiser and I think you've written more than once Every time you watch him swing the club, you don't understand how he doesn't win every week. It's your favourite golf swing to watch. 77 Thursday uh, comes up one shot shy on Sunday. That must be both – it must be bittersweet for a golfer, a tournament like that. 
Yeah, that would have been some story. I mean, he was uh, while I was sitting at that bar in the airport. He was probably when when with an hour to go, and you couldn't tell who was going to win. Um, and when it kind of looked like Jason was probably not going to win, and Adam was going to be a, a shot or two short, um, he was clearly the kind of my favorite. You know what I mean? The one I kind of geez, this would be a cool story. Um, but he's just my he's my favorite golfer. If you have a favorite golfer, when you're a kid, you have favorite golfers. Louis, Louis's my favorite golfer. I mean, he's just TV makes his golf look nice and it looks really good, but it's just incredible how it how right it looks and how balanced he looks and how he moves. He hits high shots, low shots. He moves, draws it, fades it. He just, I, I am just the biggest Louis fan there is to watch him play. It's uh, you can't, there's so much that goes into like the talent and the measurement, who's the who who are the best and and all that. I mean, but Louis is he is something pretty special. If anyone ever gets a chance to go watch him play up close, you got to go do it. It's it's a it's a very impressive thing. He and my favorite part about his golf is he doesn't really golf is not number one for him, um, which. It's obviously number one while he's playing, but he leaves and he doesn't take golf tournaments away with him and he goes back to his farm in South Africa and just loves digging holes with his tractor and stuff and hanging out with his kids and stuff. It's it's He's got a very balanced perspective, which is probably why he doesn't probably dominate like he might if, if golf was the only thing for him, but it's also very refreshing to see a guy that good just – he almost just plays golf because he just likes playing golf and then he leaves it and he can, he can leave the golf at the golf course, which is pretty cool. And go buy a tractor or a bulldozer to move earth around his farm in South Africa, which is an interesting trade uh, in a golfer. Shaq, you've got some questions uh, for Jeff. Go. Yeah, we've asked Jeff en- enough about other golfers. Yes, I always true. hate I, I hate asking one of the best players in the world about other people. I always feel like it's, it's rude. But Jeff, can you – it's been five years, right, since you've been to St. Andrews? It has been five years, yeah. So, can you just take us through uh, how you're you're preparing? You're in Australia, and then I'm curious how you're preparing, and then what it is now, five years removed, and five years wiser, and five years of doing design work. What you're uh, going in, maybe reading or thinking about, and looking for this time around. I mean, obviously, you said you're going to play some practice rounds on the weekend before, but uh, just kind of your overall approach going in. Well, I uh, yeah, first, we came back to Australia really for because it's been our kids have started school in the US now, and it's difficult to get back for any length of time, and this seemed like a really appropriate time. Also, it it's probably a lot easier to prepare for a for an open championship in Melbourne than it is in Arizona, especially in July. Um, so while here I'm going to probably do a little bit of practice in Melbourne, maybe go down and play in Tasmania or Bamboogle to kind of get a bit of Lynx feel again. Uh, and then go there early and just play as many holes as I can. I mean, I, it's truly one of my favorite places to play. I've been very lucky to play there. A lot. Um, they had this amazing amateur golf tournament called the St Andrews Lynx Trophy, which is three rounds around the old course and one around the new course. And I was lucky enough to play that three times. Um, so I've been going to St Andrews a long time, and it's obviously everyone who's been there who's a real golf fan who really loves the game just falls in love with it the more they play it because you just see more and more 
you just see more and more every time you go around. It's such a uh, a course of uh, infinite um, shades of grey, you know, interest, I- I- infinite interest. It just gets more and more interesting. Um, so I'm just going to take everything I've kind of remembered from St. Andrews in the past and I might uh, – I don't know if I'll, I'll read anything specifically. I don't. Do you have a yardage book you bring, you bring that you had you, last time? I have my. I have a couple of St. Andrews yardage books. Um, funnily enough, I, I play golf. Say my Augusta yardage books, I keep, and some of these U.S. courses. I think they're really important. I think yardage books are less important at St. Andrews, really. Um, it's because you kind of the more you play it, you know where all the trouble is you know where the bunkers are i don't know how far it is to the bunker on the second on the right or whatever it is or the one on the left that that little gnarly one on the left but i kind of know you stand on the team you know what club will go in it but i don't know how far away it is it's that sort of course i think that's why i like it so much most the precision comes out of golf and it's more just uh not the precision but the the need for precise numbers and yardage is more about the, the kind of feel it's a much more instinctive place to play so i think uh there's always stuff you forget when you haven't been at a place for four or five years but i'm sure that's why i'm going there early i'm sure going around and you stand on the second tee the third tee the fourth tee and you remember what you used to aim at and and, and the more times you go around it you start really getting that feel for kind of you can't see any of those bunkers but you can just feel where they are and you can you can just tell what club is going to get in that bunker and what club isn't. It's just it's more of a feel thing for me, which is uh, as I said, why I like the place so much. I'm most interested to see these new changes. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, some of them I don't. Uh, they're probably going to be pretty seamless, and hopefully, they've shown a sense of responsibility and not changed it too badly, but. There's a couple other things. The the seventh hole, I'm interested to see that big hole that used to be there gone, and like on the fairway. And there's some, yeah, there's some yeah. stuff I want to see, but from a I hope they haven't messed this up perspective. Um, but yeah, I'm just I'm just looking forward to going and hitting off that grass again. I'll hit a lot of long putts in practice. I think long putting is pretty key at St Andrews. Um, great putters seem to win at St Andrews. So I'll a lot of long parts and just soak up the week and enjoy it mostly. A, a short stretch of holes on sort of the middle of the third round at Chambers Bay aside, uh, pretty impressive week for you, Jeff Ovi. 67 in the last round was a good number. Um, but you seem to be playing pretty well. You had the win at the back end of last year and you've been on the sort of comeback since a couple of sputters along the way. But how are you feeling about sort of your own game and your stage in your career and life and all of those things uh, as we head into the next couple of years, I mean, particularly into the Open at St Andrews where you've said it's your favourite place. Should we be getting on you at long odds? Well, I hope – I mean, I'd like to say so. Um, I really like how I'm playing. Um, I like how I I've, – I've got an understanding of what makes my golf swing tick and what makes it go bad and, and what helps it go well – more than I ever have. Um, I've uh, I've learned a lot about my golf swing, what makes it work, and how to fix it on the go. And so I was never very good at that. Once I'd lost it on the golf course, I started in a few bad shots. I, I usually kind of got stuck in a a bit of a rut for the rest of the day or the rest of the week. Or whatever. I used to have trouble with it. Now I've, for whatever reason, I've 
really kind of I haven't worked out golf, but I've I've worked out what makes my golf swing work and what makes it not work, and I'm really kind of enjoying the long game aspect. The putting is was what kind of went bad in the first place has is coming around it's I'm, I'm starting to get a pretty good handle on that too so i'm in physically and mentally really i i mean i like where my game's at i like you said last week i i felt like i left a lot of shots out there but still ended up having a decent week i mean short of that little bad patch on saturday aside i would have been in contention um so i like how i'm playing and I think there's some good golf coming up for me, hopefully. But I mean, golf's a mysterious game. I mean, like you see with uh, like with Tiger, you mentioned before. I mean, the harder you try, sometimes the further away you get. So I think I'm going to be trying to be really conscious about just letting it happen. And if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I just I'm, but I'm enjoy I'm enjoying actually the physical playing the game more than I have for a long time because kind of as Clayton that was mentioning before, golf does beat you down for a long time and I didn't I haven't copped any near near the pressure or any of those like guy like Tiger, but it's still pretty relentless golf. Um three footers get pretty stressful when you have to hit them fifty times a week, thirty times a year. Um and it really matters if it goes in or not. Like it starts beating you down. But at this point I'm feeling really good about it. So hopefully I uh Hopefully, I play well. It'd be a great place to win a golf tournament. Mm, well, especially that you you wrote so eloquently about some of that sort of stuff. As it turns out, the article came out the week you won <laughs> the Barracuda Champion. You talked about all of that and having figured some of that stuff out. Is that are they life lessons, golf lessons? What changes? It sounded like a somewhat different Jeff Ogilvy incident, not just Jeff Ogilvy the golfer. Well, I think. I mean, I think I wrote it in the article, and I think I've said it a couple of times here and there. Like forever. I was, and I think everybody does it, and I think maybe most people never actually work this out. I was trying to work golf out. Um, as we all do, you play golf and you're just trying to work it out. You're looking for whatever, like the secret or how to play. But the reality is the game's the only thing that doesn't change. The only thing that does change is the person playing it. So once I worked out I was trying to work out me, not trying to work out the game, I started getting a lot closer. Um Everybody works differently. You can take parts from every other other people's game, which I guess is historically how people have done it. They've kind of mimicked the the players that they like, all the things that they do that they like, and kind of got rid of the stuff that they didn't like. But really, for me, it's been working out what works for me and what schedule works for me, what courses work for me, what sort of practice works for me, uh, everything. It's a... uh, as it's a slight, it's 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 a subtle difference, but once I started working, doing it kind of my way, if you like, like working out what makes Jeff Ogilvy play golf well, um, things started getting a little better. It's it's a very interesting game. <laughs> you can say that a couple of times, and you'd still be right both times, Clates. I'm sure we I, I haven't heard anywhere near enough from you with, with Jeff going to St Andrews in a few weeks. Time, there must be a million things you want to tell him, ask him. Have you got oh, some work lined up for him while he's down here? Are you putting him to work while you've got the opportunity? Well, we're doing Peninsula, so I'm sure he'd be interested in looking at that. We're re- interesting in terms of golf in Melbourne, how clubs are struggling. And there's an old club, Kingswood, where Jeff and I have, all, have played a lot over the years, who merged with Peninsula down the road and sold up for $100 million. And so we're redoing that. So it's that, that's interesting from, from the design point, but it's also interesting from the point of 
golf in Melbourne and golf around the world is how clubs are going to survive in an increasingly difficult market. And Melbourne's probably the most difficult club market in the world in terms of Royal Melbourne, Kingston Heath, Metro, Victoria, Peninsula. There are lots of really good courses. So the ones that are a bit further down the pecking order but within four or five miles of each other, it's increasingly difficult. So that's interesting, I think. But um, uh, talking about advice and Jeff working the golf, working golf out from himself, which was always Peter Thompson's was always first bit of advice was figure it out yourself. Was the, the, the problem with people giving advice in golf is that they tell you what works for them, mm. and that's often not you know, what worked for Jack Nicklaus isn't necessarily going to work for Jeff Ogilvy or Jordan Spieth or what worked for Bob Charles isn't going to work for Lou Trevino or so. so but everyone's free to hand about advice, but normally that advice is based on the things that work for them. And as I said, that's often things that don't work for other people. Do you, do you seek much advice, Jeff? It's one of the great things about golf. The elders of the game are always around uh, when you play. Are you one that seeks advice from others? or I'm probably more of an observer than I am a question asker. I mean, I've, Obviously, when I I'm starting, to unfortunately, get to that point where most people I play with are younger than me, so <laughs> they're asking you. <laughs> yeah, which is a bit weird, but um, you know, I used to ask a few questions here and there, and I still do a little bit. But I think I'm probably more of an observer. I think, uh, as Clayton said, like if I explain to you what I feel when I play golf, you could go to try to feel that. But when you feel what I feel, you'll be doing something completely differently. So I think. For me, there's always been more value in just kind of watching people play and watching them go about it and kind of not try, not trying to get somebody to explain how it feels because how it feels for you is completely how different from how it feels for me. So, I mean, I, I think early on I used to ask questions about schedules and courses and stuff like that, but less about the golf swing. I usually kind of – or the or the playing of the game, I, I kind of like to kind of watch and mimic or – Try certain things that I like the look of. Uh, the, the longer you play golf, the more you realise that you, you're never going to learn it all. That's what's so interesting about it. I've just looked at the time and seen how much of your time I've taken, so we must start to wrap up soon. But I did want to touch on some architecture with you. You obviously have always been a keen student of that, or maybe not always, but for a long time, keen student of that part of the game. Is it a hindrance or a help as a touring professional? Uh, to have an interest in golf course architecture because week in and week out you probably don't play great architecture to be fair to say no I you know this, this, this to me the setups that we play are more offensive than the bad holes um, and my interest in I guess architecture and golf course setup is can be to my detriment because I spend a lot of the time bitching and moaning that the setups are atrocious this week <laughs> Um, it's, but I think it, it's, it's a help and it's a helps and it hurts. I think last week, for example, where there was some pretty interesting stuff going on, probably not what I would hope to have built, but some interesting stuff. Um, and there was, I, I, I purposely went there and decided to have a good attitude about it, regardless of what I saw, because I knew it was potentially a course that you could lose your head over. Um, so even, <laughs> even, even in this conversation, you probably noticed that I'm pretty like hesitant to criticize it because I kind of switched on to good attitude mode, if you like, because I think that's the sensible way to try to play a golf tournament. Um, 
But I think it really there was a, a lot of elements of last week that helped me tolerate some of the stuff there because I kind of understood the intent. And I think a lot of the people, a lot of the golfers out there, their golf they don't really care where they play. If you put six million dollars up, they'll go they'll go to play down the Peen Highway if you put the money up. You know they they don't care. They just want they just want a tee and a hole in every hole and eighteen of them. Um, I think it can hurt when when I start if I get a critical hat on and I start kind of picking the course apart and saying everything's wrong, you know, why would you do that? That's not really good for golf, but I think it can really help at a place like Chambers Bay where the intent was actually right. Um, maybe mis- not executed very well in some places, but I think it, uh, having a kind of a love for that kind of strategic architectural side of the game, I think really helps on a place like that. Because you kind of you understand what they kind of even if he didn't execute it very well, understand what he was trying to get you to do, and um, I uh, I think it's a help and a hurt, but it makes it interesting. It makes it makes it interesting for my caddy to have to listen to me. I guess <laughs> I'd be I really I was laughing as you were discussing that because one of the holes I did watch you play with Marquez was uh, the beautiful twelfth on. Uh, was that Saturday, Friday, when you hit it over on the other side of that fence, and the uh, officials seemed to not know what to do? And it, in his defense, it was a mess. It was that was a that was a uh, that was a tough moment, wasn't it? It was. I mean, I, I hit the ball thirty yards right in a hole that you really couldn't do that, and it went over the other side of a dune, and it was stuck in a fence next to a path. And so <laughs> the way the rules work is. You have to get a drop away from the fence first, which is the temporary immovable obstruction, I think they would call it, onto the path, which I don't have to play off. But I have to do two different drops. And the yeah, U.S. Yeah. Open, we normally have six or seven rules officials that work for the PGA Tour, and they kind of sit in carts, and you call them in if you need them, and they drive in, and they give you the rule quick, and they go away. They're pro- that, that's what they do. I mean, that's they're professionals at it. The U.S. Open, like a lot of the national opens, the Open, U.S. Open, Australian Open, you get walking referees who probably don't referee very often but they they've passed the rules test well he was uh obviously uncomfortable in front of a lot of people making a decision that he wasn't 100 percent sure about so he had to call the rules official in and it turned into a bit of a palaver really uh yeah yeah it was a bit of a shame but um yeah that's an interesting hole the 12th yeah, yeah, yeah. That's weird. We're going to get your thoughts on it on the next episode, Shaq, because I'm getting yeah, to yeah, a fan of the Yeah, we could probably do a whole hole. show on that one, yeah. We, we might, actually, but Jeff's too good a, too good a talent to not uh, investigate a bunch of other stuff, which we must let him go. I will note, Jeff Ogilvy, that uh, in terms of your own game, your two best results this year have come at Quail Hollow and Chambers Bay. I think that's telling with your excitement heading to St Andrews, perhaps, that the the quality of the, the layouts you play, perhaps are, uh, when you're interested, maybe you play better. Um, something along those lines, perhaps. But you've had a couple of good weeks at those two, and a terrific week last week at the US Open. Congratulations. And thank you for taking some time to chat today. It's been fantastic. Yeah, no worries. It's been fun. Yeah. And Jeff Shackelford over there, I'm sure, like me, another hour and a half you could go with Jeff easily, but we'll let him go now and thank you for your time today. All right. Thank you, Rod. And Clates, uh, as again, we don't hear enough from you, but that's probably partly my fault. But uh, great yeah. to get your thoughts saying we'll catch up next week when I'm in Melbourne, which will be a lot of fun. Beautiful. Thanks, mate. And that wraps up State of the Game, episode 57, uh, our second with a player of the week after a US Open, which is exciting. We hope you've enjoyed that, and we look forward to your company again next time on State of the Game. 
State of the Game is a Talkin' Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.